This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Good morning. New year, new series. Are you guys ready to dig into the book of John, the gospel of John? I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I thought we'd just go ahead and kick off the new year right diving into uh, our text. Uh, actually, it's 16 weeks from here to Christmas, so guess, I mean from here to Easter. Gosh, say it's <laughs> Christmas on the brain still. And um, so anyhow, good to see you guys. You're my peeps. I mean, you were the ones that were deciding like, Oh, what am I going to wear to the living room tonight? Or am I even going? I don't know. You know, maybe you were watching the game. Anyone stay up and watch the game? If you have to ask the, what game, I, like, I, it, don't, it doesn't matter. But anyhow, well, here we are. Good to see you this morning. We are starting in the Gospel of Mark. And, uh, you know, one of the things is that when we're studying the Bible that people forget is that the Bible is not only uh, historical, it's not only great information, it's not only profound, it's not only the revealing of God's heart, but it is also great literature. And, you know, uh, oftentimes that's really kind of missed. We don't really think of the Bible in terms of its literary qualities in fact, sometimes, even in some circles, when you start to talk about literary qualities in the Bible, like people start getting nervous, they're worried you're going to go all you know, weird on them or something, nothing weird about it. Listen, it's well written. Uh, I, I want you to think about it for a moment. Just your perspective of God is really wrapped up in some of this. Do you and I believe that God is smart, not just good, that His ways are good and right, and that and when He created us in His image, our love of good story, our love of a good tale, our love of, of the unfolding of things and following a storyline, like we got that from God, right? God is the ultimate storyteller. And so the scriptures are woven together in such a way. Uh, people say, why isn't everything chronological? Well, part of it is, is that God is a great storyteller and chronological isn't always the best way to tell a story. In fact, I found sometimes it's the worst way to tell a story because people then get lost in the details. They don't understand how things fit together. One of the things about the Gospels in particular, they are biographies, right? And so because they are biographies written about the life and times of Jesus, uh, you might notice when you look at them, they're not all in the same order. Because, once again, they're not in chronological order. That is not the point. The point is that each book is written in a very specific way for a particular audience or group of people. That's why there's four of them. They are different on purpose. It's not like, oh, we just didn't get the same facts down or whatever. No, these are actually different tellings on purpose. And each one of those Gospels has a particular theme that is underlined, that runs through the whole thing. And if you look at it that way, you'll discover God is an amazing writer and storyteller. He is doing something specific in every Gospel. And so as we are jumping here into the book of Mark, uh, you know, you and I are looking at uh, the revelation of a mystery, of something that was un not understood from ages past and is now suddenly being revealed. 
It starts in a different place than all the other Gospels. Uh, you know, the, uh, in terms of the Synoptic Gospels, uh, Matthew and Luke both start with the birth of Jesus. This just jumps headlong right into the events of Jesus' ministry uh, because it's written to a completely different audience. It is primarily a Gospel written to an audience that is not Jewish and doesn't care about a Jewish Messiah doesn't care about Jewish politics and problems and things like that. It is written specifically to speak to a Gentile audience. And so it jumps in and begins to explain things in terms of who he is. It is a very intentional polemic, if you're familiar with that word, against Rome. In other words, it is written to go on the attack to say there is a son of God who is king of the universe, but it isn't Caesar. And that begins the undergirding themes uh, that run all through this gospel. So as you and I are doing this, here's the thing is that you and I want to, we want to gain the historical understanding of the book. Uh, we want to uh, have application each time as we go through these messages. But also one of my hopes for you as we're going through this is by giving you some of these tools and clues along the way that it will improve your personal reading of the book of Mark because you'll begin to understand why was Mark put together this way? Why is it different than the other Gospels? Is there a contradiction? Is there a problem? Uh, is there some reason that I should, it should create doubt or worry? Or should I instead have my faith built up and should I be encouraged by the simple fact that it is laid out the way it is, that is ultimately my intent. Now, with any good story, there has to be a plot. And so the plot is this, the good news. I know, that's shocking to you, but it, but it sounds, as funny as that sounds, you've got to remember that here in the 21st century, as you and I sit from our vantage point, especially in the United States of America, where just by having things like Christmas, people have some awareness of the story of the gospel. I'm not saying they understand it correctly. I'm just saying that there's some awareness that there is a claims of Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, the Son of God. There's some understanding of, of that, there, there, that there is him coming back. Actually, it's kind of a funny thing. Even among uh, people who are not, do not consider themselves Christians or believers, there is a strong confidence in the United States of America that A, we are living in the end of times, and B, that Jesus is coming back. What's really interesting is when you look in those stats, that there's this overlap between atheists who don't believe in Jesus but believe he's coming back because it's the end times. I'd like to know who those people are. I think that can be some really interesting conversations in and of itself. Uh, but nonetheless, here we are. The great plot is the good news as promised by Isaiah the prophet, but yet is veiled in that moment and is going to be unveiled as we make our way through the book. And so uh, you're going to learn the secret or the mystery of Mark. Actually, it's called the mystery gospel in a, by a number of people over the years, and I'm talking over the millennia. People have written about it as the mystery gospel. And so with that said, we've got a lot to cover this morning. Mark chapter 1, 1 through 45, a lot of verses there. So if you are uh, using a phone or tablet, please set that to silent. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. 
Please follow along in whatever translation you have. The one in your lap is my absolute favorite. Let's read together. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, and we read these words. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice from heaven said, You are my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel." Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and, I will, and you will become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at his teachings, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. And now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. The whole city was gathered at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, 
let us go to the next town that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went through all of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling to him, If you will, you can make me clean. And moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him, and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. Well, I was hoping, uh, originally whenever I was putting this all together, I put together this nice map, you know, because I've been like trying to do this whole thing. My wife has been asking me about slides, help people follow along, and it occurred to me that like we went all over the place in Jerusalem in that first chapter there, and so I was going to do this really cool thing, had a really nice map was going to show you, and then when we loaded it up, it was like that big. And when we stretched it out, I was like standing right here trying to read it, and I couldn't read it from there, so I knew you couldn't read it, and so anyhow, we will figure that out. I will have you a map next week to show you where these things are happening, uh, but I think it's worth your time, actually, you know, uh, not, not right this moment, but, you know, to, if you want to take a look on an atlas and kind of follow that to see where those journeys are taking them, that where these things are happening, to understand where uh, Galilee is in particular, how so much of what happens is all in, a, in the region of Galilee. It's not a town, it's a region occupying, uh, you know, the northern section, including his hometown of Nazareth, but anyhow... Um, we will uh, take a look at that another time. So, most important, uh, as we begin in the letter, it opens with us in Isaiah chapter 40. Now, if you're not familiar with Isaiah 40, uh, if you were with us during the Advent series, you heard me say repeatedly uh, that Isaiah is full of messianic texts that have uh, great implications. There's the historical part of those things, and then there was the manifold, the unfolding of those things that points to Messiah. Isaiah 40 is the largest of those chapters. Uh, no, we didn't cover it during the Christmas series because I knew we were going to get to it here, and I thought I didn't want to, you know, like be touching on Isaiah 40 a couple of weeks ago and be back there again, and you feel somewhat redundant. But um, uh, although I don't think it would be that redundant, nonetheless. One of the largest and most extensive messianic texts in the whole Old Testament. The foundation of John the Baptist's message declaring the coming of the Lord is there in Isaiah 40. Now, if you'll remember, during that uh, series, I made a lot of references to the Greek version of the Old Testament, also known as the Septuagint. Can I get a Septuagint slide? So, in case you weren't here and you don't remember what the Septuagint is, the Septuagint, sometimes shown in Roman numerals of 70, that's what Septuagint means, referring to the story of the 70 original scholars working on the text. 
uh, and kind of the, the uh, mythology around that, the story, whether it's true or not, we don't really know. I would say uh, 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 it's just mythology, okay? But uh, the mythology around it is simply this, that these 70 scholars were commissioned two from uh, every you know, uh, uh, tribe and, uh, excuse me, uh, six from every tribe, and so that they would, and the idea was that they would go their separate ways, that they would translate it, and they would come back together, and then they would put the document together so that they would all have time to, you know, work on it and get it translated. And the, so the, the story is that when they came back together, that everybody had the exact same translation. Okay, the problem was that in real life is that about half of them were dead before they finished, the, and their, their disciples had to continue and finish the work. So probably, you know, it's just mythology. Nonetheless, 70, Greek translation, and you've got to remember that this was because during the intertestamental period, Hebrew was virtually lost to the Hebrew people. Under the rule of Alexander the Great, the Hellenization of the world, the beginning of Western civilization, really, in terms of uh, spreading, uh, there being one common language of Greek, and everyone spoke Greek, and the end result was the Hebrews were so sucked into that world, became such a big part of that world, uh, participating in the Olympics and other things, that people literally began to lose their ability to read Hebrew. And so, in an effort to uh, kind of redeem that, they translated the Bible from Hebrew into Greek. It will later become the foundation for when Greek culture continues to uh, impact the world and when the early church is then toting their Bible before the New Testament was written, they were, those who had portions of the Scripture had them in Greek, in the Septuagint. It is the translation that is quoted in the New Testament. So when you see differences in your New Testament from a quote that is a reference to the Old Testament, the reason for that difference is because they're quoting the Septuagint, not the Hebrew. Your Old Testament, one of the things we've done very methodically, very intentionally uh, in modern scholarship, is to translate from the Hebrew. And so, uh, and then compare those things. Uh, uh, the, the, uh, an exception would be the King James Bible that is such a, you know, it's been so foundational in American culture and Bible study uh, because after the revolution, it was the only Bible that anybody could find. Um, the, the previous primary Bible for the early church was the, uh, I mean, for the American church was the Geneva Bible uh, because the King James Bible was viewed with suspect because of King James, right? And they came here for religious freedom, and King James was Catholic. And so if you find an actual 1611 King James Bible, all those deuterocanical books like, you know, Bell and the Dragon, Maccabees and everything are in the King James. When you go to a King ja when you go to a Catholic Bible today, it is built on the foundation of the King James more than anything else. Little his little Bible history there for you. Okay. 
So, here we are, we get to this passage, and it is a direct quote from the Septuagint. And so it says to us, we read there, that he was preparing the way of the Lord. Now, one of the reasons that's really significant to you and I is that in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, can I get the next slide, please? The actual name there is Yahweh. It's not Lord. But again, because of some cultural things, then whenever they would read the name Yahweh, they were so afraid of mispronouncing it, especially as time went on and they became less and less able to read Hebrew. And they were like, hmm, are we saying it right? If we don't say it right, will we be offending God? And so they got to where they just said, Adonai. They said, Lord. Adonai in Hebrew, Greek, in the Greek, is the word kyrios, for Lord. The interesting kind of intangible quality there, the word Lord, doesn't necessarily mean divine. Right? So, because if you own property, you might be a land Lord, if you are uh, part of a government in some place like uh, you know England and you own land, you might be a Lord, right? And so we have an understanding of Lord that is a little fuzzier. So Jesus is Lord, but what, what do we mean by that is really important because you talk to people who say, well, there are many Lords, but He's Lord of Lords. He is, he is the Son of God. But in particular, here, here's why this is all important. When John the Baptist is using Isaiah 40 to declare who Jesus is, he's quoting the passage that says, prepare the way for Yahweh. Yahweh. He's telling us right from the very get-go but it's in a veiled manner because if unless you know the Hebrew and this is written to a Greek audience, they don't know what they're being told. He's dropping a hint. Remember I said this is great literature? When you have great literature, what happens? Whenever you are in a great story, whether it's in a book or it's in a movie, you don't want to be late, right? When you come into the movie because if you miss the first few minutes, you might miss big clues to the story that's unfolding. You come in five minutes late because you were fighting about what time you were supposed to be at the theater. Not that any of you have done that, but other people that have fought on their way to the movie theater, like they fight on the way to church. But anyhow, uh, you know, uh, not that you've done that, but some people are late to the movie, and then they're invariably going, oh, man, you know, and so then they, like, want to stay late into the, you know, next showing of the movie just so they can see the first few minutes, uh, You've never done that, I know, but, but some people have done things like that, and they want to know because those secrets were given away in the very first few moments. If you're reading a really good book, there are hints at how the story's going to come together. Now, one of the bad parts about me, I'm just going to warn you ahead of time, is if, that, if, if it bugs you when people like start guessing the plot, don't watch movies with me. Just don't, okay? Because I'm immediately, the moment I see the clues, I'm like going, my family, we talk 
during the movie. We're like looking at each other. Hey, what do you think? I think it's this. I think it's this. And we're like trying to guess to see who's going to be right about how the movie ends. And yes, I am usually right. Oh, that's all I can say. Anyhow, uh, but I, you know, they're not here to defend themselves. Anyhow, um, but I, 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 you know, those plot lines are right there in the beginning. And listen, right here in the opening of Mark, he's telling us in a very veiled way, as he quotes the Septuagint, the good news, the gospel of the Messiah is Yahweh, King of kings, Lord of lords, the God of the universe. He himself is going to be appearing to us and make, and, and this is who is launching onto the scene. We, you don't know who he is. You have really no idea, but I want you to know that there's this story that I have to tell you, and it is foundationally built on this, that long ago, one of our prophets, he doesn't even really get into who the prophet is. You see, it's it's not important to a Greek Gentile audience. He's saying, I want you to know that this is built on a foundation from long ago. This is something special. This has been declared. And so there's this sense in which, you know, there's a prophetic word, but what does it mean? What does it mean? Make the path of the coming of Lord. Did I mention before earlier, I said this was kind of a polemic directly targeted at Rome, that the most common title for Caesar is Lord. The most common title, the one that he's referred to most in all of Greek and Roman literature is that of Lord. And instead we're told, make the way for for the real Lord. Not Lord Augustus. Not Lord Caesar, Lord Yahweh. He's coming to take care of His people. He's coming to dwell in the midst of them. It's kind of like, you know, we say, a little lost in translation, but it's still there very much so. So that when we get to verse 11, and the voice from heaven is heard, clue number two, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Second attack on Caesar, on the very coin, the most popular coin of all, the declaration that Caesar is the Son of God. There's an attack that's being made from the very opening pages who the real Lord is, and who is the real Son of God, but not yet declared, not yet fully declared. You and I, as 21st century readers, can read that and go, oh, yes, I see that, but I want you to understand there's a story that's unfolding that you might be missing because you're so overly familiar with the big picture that you're not letting Mark tell his story. You're not letting the gospel unfold so that you can see what's happening. You're not caught up in the action because you're already jumping to the punchline. Here, stealthfully written, 
It's telling us Yahweh is coming. The real Lord. The real Son of God. And additionally then, and announcing the kingdom of God, beginning in verse 15. But this kingdom is unlike anything that they could imagine. It's not an earthly rule defined by territory, but the effective rule and reign of God in the hearts of citizens, expanding not by conquest and domination of people, but by willful submission of people's hearts and lives to His will being done in their lives. How? Repentance and believing the forgiveness of sins. That conquest would be the triumph of God over Satan. And then look, it's demonstrated by Jesus. Right there in verses 12 and 13. What happens? Jesus, right after He's baptized, is taken out into the wilderness. You and I, typically when we're talking about the wilderness thing, like we get kind of wrapped around the axle and miss the point of the temptation in the wilderness. We're worried about the fact that he's going 40 days without food, probably because as Americans we have a hard time going like 40 minutes without food. But, but, but no, uh, uh, you know, uh, in all seriousness, we, we get really wrapped ar- the axle around that. We also are worried because he's being tempted and, and we find that you know, like, uh, a- a- offensive to our minds because we've already settled within us that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We also find in it comfort in some sense of Jesus being tempted in that way and understanding, right? Hebrews says that he was tempted in the same way that you and I were tempted and yet was without sin. And so we understand through that there's compassion that he has for us. We cling to those things, but can I point out to you that most significant here in this place is that we're being told Jesus already has his first victory right out of the box. Right out of the box, right? I mean, he's run down for the, you know, in, in football, he's run down for the touchdown right on the opening play. I mean, he's, he's gone for it. He's made a declaration. This is how it's going to be from now on. We are going to conquer. I am overcoming. I am the overcoming one. There is not a moment in which I am defeated. There is not a moment in which I've been overcome. There is not a moment from the word go, from the get-go. See, when you look at the other Gospels, like that's why they start with his childhood, and it's sweet, and it's, you know, and we have all these things. He's telling us, he starts here because he wants us to know he was never overcome. There was never a moment of doubt. From the opening chapter, he's winning. From the opening chapter, he's conquering, but not in the way that you would expect. And that ends the first half of chapter 1. Second half of chapter 1 shifts gears. The second half of the chapter begins verse 16. And the invitation of the gospel, the calling of the first disciples, it's, it's laying out something for 
our understanding. That's why it's put there in chapter 1. When you get in the other Gospels, it's like chapters 5, 6, or 7, right? Before you get to that point, there's this unveiling of how they become his disciples, and then the point in which they are called and become apostles and things like that. There's a specific intent with those storylines, but this one is making the point from the very beginning is that in his conquest, in his being the victor, he now is marshalling his forces. They're coming to the aid, to the side of, they're joining forces with him who is already victorious. They are, they are choosing sides because he has already defeated Rome. He has already defeated Satan. He has already defeated him. It is in the bag and they're joining forces. Now he's telling you what it looks like to join forces with Jesus. What do they do? They drop everything and follow. Now, here's the problem. Most of us, when we read the book of Mark and we read that, that we think to ourselves, well, so does that mean that like everybody needs to become like an apostle? Like you have every, is it the highest calling to be a pastor or an evangelist or a missionary? Or what about, is there any value in me staying home and being a baker, a, 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 you know, a candlestick maker? Is there any advantage to me staying home and being a mechanic or a postal worker or a teacher? Or See, sometimes we, we're missing the point. When they drop everything, we think that we're being that the most important thing is to go and be something else. No, the point is that they were called to be fishers of men. The point is, is that nothing superseded that. When you are joining forces with the one who is victorious over all things, like everything else kind of fades into the distance. Everything else becomes secondary. Everything else becomes a tool toward the ends of the campaign. But the point is, is that being a disciple of Jesus means that I put all my heart and soul into that. I drop everything, as it were, to follow him. Nothing gets in the way of following him. Nothing. I'm trusting my well-being. I'm trusting my finances. I am trusting my social dynamics, my relationships, my family, my everything. He's drawing the point. Unless you're willing to do that, you cannot be my disciple. If anything else comes first, you're not following Jesus. You're adding Jesus on. Jesus is not an add-on. It's not like you have, you know, your personal planner, your personal computer, and your personal savior. Jesus will not be an add-on. And when you treat him like an add-on, you've already missed it. You could be lost in the house. Hello? They drop everything. He becomes first, and putting aside everything that hindered them from following they enlisted in his army. Now, this army, the reader quickly discovers, is also not of this world. The first battle begins in verse 21. Jesus teaches his disciples. He's training the troops, right? He's, he's preparing them, his, his disciples. He's preparing the people of Israel with this message. It's not going to battle against Rome. It's going to battle against the actual enemy. 
against the dark powers that have enslaved humanity. So right out of the box, he's already fresh from one victory. He is tangled with Satan himself and walked away. What you don't realize is that is being hinted at. I'm spoiler alert, sorry. What is hinted at in that very in that opening moment when he's doing that is that Satan doesn't want him to go to the cross. Satan knows that if he goes to the cross, his his victory is sealed. So he is all the time, all throughout the Gospel of Mark, he is doing everything in his power to get Jesus to not go to the cross. That's why chapter 8, the epicenter of the entire book in terms of length, but the epicenter in terms of activity in the book is what? Peter says... No, Lord, that will never happen. And, and Jesus says, oh, Peter, I know you love me so much. No. What does he say? Get behind me. Get behind me, Satan. See, Satan didn't want him to go to the cross. It wasn't that Jesus doesn't want to go to the cross. It's that Satan doesn't want Jesus to go to the cross because Satan has other plans. Do do you know sometimes that you and I, even though we might be filled with the Spirit of God, even though we might have done signs, even though we may have experienced the power and the presence of God, that there can be at times when we get our wants, our mission, our likes, our relationships, our family, our friends, our... We put those things ahead of the mission of God. Just what the enemy wants. Foundational. So he's equipping them. He's getting them ready for the greatest battle of all. The battle to save humanity from being enslaved by the powers of darkness. First up, unclean spirit, who gets his hat handed to him in a big way, right? Verse 24, the demon says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And, say, and Jesus says, wow, tell everybody that. No, right? What does he say? Shut up. Because what happens when all of this stuff starts breaking loose and the power and the presence of God is at work in His people, like it's immediate, like the crowd starts to show up. See, this is one of the things where I think we've got it completely upside down in American Christianity. We're advertising, we're coming up with schemes to get people, we got friend church Sunday, you know, we got all these things. Oh, we got to get people to church. If you just go to my church, it'd be different. No, it won't. Not unless we're different. I don't see where Jesus was like having to put up billboards, come to my church, you know, with a picture of Jesus on the front of it. You know, I mean, I just don't see it. Do you? Like it says that once that the power of God was at work in their midst, that people were coming. Hmm. Been thinking about that a whole lot lately. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This is your next hint to who Jesus is. It's the next hint to that Gentile audience reading the book for the very first time. And Jesus shuts him down and doesn't let him reveal. He does it again in verse 34. 
when he cast out another demon, and, he, and we read, he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. He didn't want their testimony. He doesn't need Satan's testimony. He doesn't need anybody else to declare who he is. He doesn't need for some superstar to promote him. He doesn't need some rock star to be a Christian or some athlete to be a Christian. Why did Jesus want to keep the secret? Simple answer is this. There just wasn't that it just it just wasn't time. As you see throughout the biographies of Jesus, Jesus had an agenda. And he wasn't willing for anything to jeopardize it. Satan had an agenda, and he was doing everything to disrupt the work of Jesus. And if he could get Jesus declared king, instead of Jesus going to the cross, that would have been his win. He would have loved for Jesus, for everybody to go, oh, we know who he is, and start bowing down and refuse to crucify him. See, you and I think about it like, how come he didn't do that? Because that wasn't the plan, first and foremost. God, who is the creator and author of all things, knows how it should be done rightly. And then there's my opinion, right? Anybody ever wrestled between your opinion and what God's doing and you don't understand? I, you know, probably only me. But um, Satan had an agenda. It began with the 40 days in the wilderness most clearly revealed then, like I said in Mark 8, everything he could do to keep him from getting there. Now, a more subtle but complex answer is simply this, that as you and I are reading Mark, and we know that God is a really good storyteller, that he's telling this account through Mark and giving us a different reason for Mark's gospel than for Matthew's gospel or Luke's gospel or John's gospel. And so there is some intentional structuring of the story that's not chronological, like I said before. He's revealing things. He's putting things in, in, in a specific order to tell us something about who Jesus is. He's wanting us to have this kind of... Uh, uh, you know, awakening in our hearts. Like, you think of like a, a beautiful flower that is all closed up. You ever tried to open a flower that's all closed up? Doesn't work well, does it? You, you grab hold of a flower and you start to pull it open and it just destroys it. You got to wait for the right timing. You, you wait for it to blossom. And so in the story, things are intentionally written in such a way as for this to blossom in our hearts, for you and I to do the same thing that everyone else in the book is doing, to grow in faith, to grow in our sense of expectation, to grow in our sense of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, how to relate to Jesus, how to walk with Jesus. What does it look like to follow him? Not just jump to the end and go, yeah, well, he died for our sins. Amen. Well, that's great. I mean, that's really awesome. I don't know about you, but do you ever get tired of that kind of Christianity where we're always telling people, well, don't look at me, look at Jesus. I'm a bad example. 
That's so attractive to the world, isn't it? I mean, like, it's really being effective right now. We're, we're just, we're really killing it out there with that message. Versus the early church that was so radically transformed by the power of the gospel that even as, in the, when we're in Acts, right? And, and like, it says that the power of God was among them so much that people were afraid to join them. And yet it says, and they, but God added to their number day by day. See, instead of like trying to put on a big show to draw people in, people were afraid to join them because like things happen. Remember, Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead for lying. The ground shook when they prayed. Can I remind us, if the ground shakes when you pray, people die when you lie. The presence of God is what was drawing people. The working of God through the people of God was what was drawing people. But people didn't just come in and go, gee, I think I'll go down to such and such church on Sunday and see what they're up to. I wonder if they have good worship. I wonder if their preacher preaches for, you know, less than 45 minutes. Purposefully telling the story. His fame grows. He's no longer able to enter towns. He resorts to preaching in the wilderness, and the people are still coming to him from every place, from every quarter. It says they're coming. They want to know. They want, to be, they, they want help. They want deliverance. They want to be delivered from the real thing that's oppressing them. See, the problem isn't really Rome. The problem isn't really who's in office right now. The problem isn't really what the price of gas is. The real problem is is that we are under the weight of sin and death and it is crushing the life out of us and there's nothing else out there that's attractive. That's why we're fighting about it. That's why we're so divided about it. Because there is nothing out there that is attractive. Can I be honest? For the most part, not a whole lot attractive about the church right now either because it looks just like the world. You know, we often find ourselves without hearers, without receptivity, without an audience. And it's explained because, well, the world's just so dark and it's the last of days. But you know, that doesn't fit with the plain testimony of the Gospels. Do not be deceived into believing the devil's lie that it's darker now that the church is two billion strong in the world than it was on Jesus' day when there was only a handful of believers. If that's true, then that means we really are a miserable lot. If the world is darker today, if Brooksville, Florida is darker today with us, with Vine Life Church present, That's an indictment on Vine Life Church. Hello? There are more people walking with Christ, in theory, in this church, in two services, than there was on the day of Pentecost. And yet the Spirit of God fell and thousands of people believed that day. Please, don't give me that garbage that it's too dark. Don't give me the garbage 
that nobody's interested. I, I'm just telling you, they're just not interested in our politics. They're not interested in our positioning of ourselves. They're not interested in our rhetoric. What they want is the power of God. They want to see us delivered. They want to see us set free. They want to see us experiencing the power and the presence of God in our lives and that it overflows into their lives when they come into contact with us. That is compelling. That is so much better than honk. See, the, the darkness isn't greater. Our message isn't less relevant to a modern world full in all of its pain. Sin, disease, sickness, oppression still reign over the earth. There's still a need for the life-redeeming message of the good news. It's no less life-giving today. The problem is, is when we do just what the Pharisees were doing, we, we preach another gospel, one of religion, that weighs heavy on people, that they have to have a checklist of do's and don'ts. Or the self-help gospel, where it's all about making you feel better about yourself. Or a gospel that saves you from eternal damnation, but leaves you powerless in the, presence, in the present, unable to live a kingdom life now. Those are other gospels. I submit to you that Mark proclaimed a gospel of the kingdom which was at hand. That's what his words. The kingdom of God is at hand. A gospel that broke into his world, set captives free, healed the sick and the lame, and that our world is longing for right now. Our world is longing for you and I to drop everything. I don't mean to go on a missionary trip. I don't mean to move to faraway lands. Although that might be God's call in your life, I don't know. I mean to drop everything in the sense of that everything becomes a tool for the purpose of the gospel, not putting everything else first and adding on the things of the kingdom. The kind of disciples who spend time with Jesus, the kind of disciples who stretch out their hands to do what he did. But the only way that happens is if you and I drop everything to spend time with Jesus like those early disciples did so that we not only learn about Jesus but we're filled with his presence overflowing with his presence so from here to Easter we make our way through this gospel of Mark and the agenda is simple it's for you and I to understand not just the gospel of Mark but for you and I to spend time over the next 16 weeks getting to know Jesus better. Would you join me for that? If that hits home with you, I just want to invite you, if you want to do more, you, you, to, to connect with Jesus, let me just invite you to stand up for some prayer right now. So, Father God, we thank you so much for your Son, Jesus. We thank you for the work of eternal life that begins not in the sweet by and by, but in the here and now. We have an expectation of your power and your presence, that your Holy Spirit dwells among us, empowering us for life and for ministry, to do and to become the people of the kingdom, to be your disciples, to make disciples of all peoples, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their faith system, regardless of their beliefs, regardless of how they sin differently than us, 
that you have called us to be a people who resonate so with the kingdom that even when people are uh, somewhat afraid of the power and the presence of God working in and among us, they are drawn by that same power. They, are, they see the declaration of the kingdom through our lives, through the prayers we pray for them, for the extending of our hand in mercy and hope and healing, that our prayers reside not in a place of empty words, but our prayers would reside in a place of fellowship with you. That they would not be the prayers that we pray for the first time today, but they are, would come out of a life that is constantly in prayer. Overflowing, praying without ceasing. That we would hear your voice, seek your face, your hand, your direction, whether we're throwing burgers, picking up the mail, shuffling papers. Lord, we're asking you to be the epicenter of our lives, the directional, the compass. We're asking you to fill us with the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we're asking you to open afresh to us the Gospels, the, the entire count of the, these biographies of Jesus, and that you would pour into us not just head knowledge, but an experiential knowledge of the, the presence of Jesus, that we would learn from him and we would become not just Christians, in some political sense, but students, followers of Jesus in the truest sense, so that our lives look like Him living through us in our world. Make this a year without regret for the sake of the kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way the most recent podcast will always be in your feed ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.